welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you do, do you ever wonder how God is holding everything together? I mean, when you kind of like stop, right, and you recognize your own finality, your own sort of limitedness in the universe, uh, and like how it all actually happens, like how God actually does what God does. I had this experience yesterday, so big storm rolls through the Twin Cities yesterday, high winds, so on and so forth. My neighbor's got a rotten tree that's, you know, other neighbors keep saying, you know, you really ought to cut that down. It's going to fall over one of these days. That'd be the one over here. This one over here uh, doesn't cut it down. So we got this new dog. She has to go to the bathroom a lot. So I take the dog out to go potty, and uh, a couple of the children follow me outside, and I have this moment, and, and they're, it's, it's kind of raining, and the wind's kind of, it had sort of died down a little bit, and so they're, they're sort of like hiding underneath this little wood shelter thing that I built by our, our fire pit, and I have this moment of like, probably not the best idea that they're out here, right? Like in the middle of a huge, massive windstorm. We've had tree branches like fall in our, in our yard. We've lost an entire pine tree in the front yard. There's something about this property. Things just fall apart. <laughs> it's like the money pit. Tom Hanks, was that a movie? It was money? Yeah, okay. So I have this moment, like, maybe not the best idea. So I'm like, kids, get inside, please. Probably shouldn't be out here. Like, if I go down, like, happy Father's Day. But if you go down, <laughs> I don't know that I could live with myself. So I send them inside. The dog does her deal. We come inside. Not two minutes later, I'm looking out the kitchen window and I'm like, whoa, you know, like big, huge, the trees are just like bending over like this. And sure enough, you hear this big, huge crack and this gigantic, half of this huge silver maple tree falls. Do you want to know where? Literally would have. And it's like, in a moment like that, my temptation is to say like, thank you, God, that, that you you know, protected them. But as a theologian, <laughs> I think to myself, is that actually what happened? Was it actually like God holding this tree up while the little people were underneath it, and then as soon as I moved them, God, then God sort of withdrew God's hand and it fell? Or was it just an intuition that I had that as a dad, probably not the best idea, they should go inside and then, sure enough, we live in a crazy world with uh, windstorms and trees fall over. And I guess I, I, I want to share that with you, not because it has anything to do with my sermon, but just because it was one of those moments where I realized the difficulty, the temptation, the, the sort of razor's edge that we walk as people who follow God and follow this Jesus to not automatically assume and say, oh, God protected my family. Because God then doesn't protect somebody else's family sometimes. And somebody else's kids didn't get moved and the tree fell on them. And like how dangerous that is. And so my response, I guess I just wanted to share this with you, was just, God, thanks that I still have my kids. Thank you that they're still alive. Thank you that I still get to be their dad. Just more gratitude than anything else. Uh, so that's free. Second Corinthians chapter 7. <laughs> I don't know how to transition into what I'm going to do, so 
There is no transition. It's like, change gears. That's what we've done there. Um, so if you've been with us, we're in the series on 2 Corinthians. We're wrapping this up. We're sort of, we're, we're rounding third base here. Uh, as we get closer to the end, we're going to just pick passages that kind of have life. The sort of second half of the book of 2 Corinthians, it, Paul starts to repeat himself a little bit. And, uh, and so we're not going to cover things that we've already covered per se, but there are a few nuggets along the way. And we're going to stop at those state parks with good views, as, as it were, as a you know, family on vacation. So today is one of those days, and we're going to stop. Um, if you remember last week, Paul had just sort of given this huge long list of things that essentially he would argue uh, authenticate him as an apostle. The Corinthians are assuming or saying that these are the things that, are th- that, that actually undermine his ability or his authenticity as an apostle. But Paul says, no, it's both and. It's the beauty and the pain. It's light and darkness. It's all of these things, the pain and the healing, together because we live in a world where trees fall down and yet Jesus has resurrected. And so it's holding both of these intention that is the, uh, the challenge, the, uh, the discipline, and what maturity looks like as a follower of Jesus. That it's both celebration and grief at times. And we hold those two things in tension. We also talked a little bit about pirates last week. So if you weren't here, you might want to podcast that. Uh, that's not a common topic in church. Um, some people ask me like, okay, but pirates killed people and they stole stuff. Is that what you're saying we should do? Clearly, no, not what I'm saying that you should do. But what motivates piracy is this act of emancipation, right? This desire to sort of free up for the common good that which has been taken hostage by the elite. There were some gospel themes in there that I wanted to explore. So that was last week. This week, uh, let me kind of fill you in and then we'll read the passage. So Paul, Paul mentions all these things, this list. And then there's this bizarre little like three verse section we're going to skip because he talks about uh, essentially like do not be yoked with unbelievers. You might have heard this if you've ever dated somebody who wasn't a Christian and you had people in youth group who were like, hey, you shouldn't be yoked to an unbeliever. That's where that comes from, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, right at the end. It's bizarre. There's this part that we studied last week, this part that we're going to study this week, and then there's this odd two or three verses in there. And a lot of times people wonder, like, where does that come from or how did that get in there? Lots of theories about that. So I'll just share two briefly. One is that Paul wrote as he traveled, right? He had been in Corinth in the south, right? South down here. He had gone up into the north to these churches that he had, he had planted, and he wrote when he stopped. He got to port, he set up camp, he went to a hostel, and he got out his amanuensis, and they wrote. And so it's a bit choppy. It's a little uh, not integrated, per se. It's not one letter written all in one sitting, right? That's one theory. Another theory is, if you remember, this book that we have is 2 Corinthians, and we have 1st and 2nd. And there are actually four letters to the church at Corinth, uh, historically, that we believe to be written by Paul. We only have two of them. Two of them are lost. Some believe that portions of this letter of tears that he actually mentions in the passage we'll read today get sort of added later. Um, this is called redaction criticism. So we sort of figure out how things got together And some people believe that some of these pieces of this letter were added at a later date. For example, Mark chapter 16, if you look in your Bibles, many of your your texts actually say this, like 16 something, uh, I think it ends at 16.8, and then there's more in in our Bibles. That was added later, like probably 100 years after the fact, after Mark wrote the gospel. This happens in the scriptures, right? So just good to know that this is a possibility. I think it's less likely that that's the case. I think it's more likely that he was sort of writing as he went. 
be that as it may, chapter 7, verse 2. Stand with me, and we will read God's word and then dig in. Paul says this, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, but I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia up in the north, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by sending Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is the letter of tears that I believe is lost, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that God before you, or that before you, before God, you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all of this, we are encouraged. Pray with me. God, on this day when we set it aside to recognize dads, uh, I thank you for all of the dads who have invested and loved well, who have named and called out their sons and their daughters, who have planted seeds of life in them. Uh, We give you thanks for those who have lived into this metaphor we find in Scripture of what you are like, like a father sometimes. God, for those who have not had that, who have had fathers who maybe uh, were less than, I pray, God, that you would comfort, that you would give peace, that you would in some way be like a father to those who need a father. As we open this text and as we study it, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would uh, help us to see you for who you are, to glean the wisdom and the truth that lies within this text that is you for us today. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So as we read this passage, you begin to see some of the things that we sort of connect the dots with, right? So there there are four letters that were written to Corinth. We don't have all of them. Paul references this letter, this letter of tears that he sent to them, right? He went to visit them. He wrote them. Then he goes to visit them. A bad scenario happens, and uh, they they call Paul out, and they they question his authority and his authenticity as as an apostle. Nobody comes to his aid. We talked about this. We get this from the earlier chapters of 2 Corinthians. So there's a rift between Paul and Corinth. He leaves. He goes north, and, and he writes a letter where he basically calls them out, and he sort of chastises them and calls them on the carpet 
And this is what he's referencing. You know, he says, I, I, I regretted sending the letter. It was maybe a little harsh. Maybe I was a little too, I went a little overboard on that one. And then Titus came and he visited. So Titus had gone to Corinth to check in on the church there to see how the letter had been received. And then he sent back to Paul and Paul references this here. All right, everybody tracking so far? So there's two things that kind of jumped out for me as I read this text. I want to offer them today for your consideration. The first one won't make sense for a little bit, so just hang with me. I would say it this way. The problem with super fill-in-the-blank. Um, when you think of Paul, the apostle, this is play-along, not a rhetorical question. What comes to mind? Just shout it out. What do you think of when you think of Paul? The apostle. What else? Come on, gang. Say again. Conversion. Yep. Road to Damascus. Suit, you know, Bright lights. Uh, blinded. The whole deal. What else? Passionate, yes, absolutely. Zealous, I would say. Intelligent, wicked smart, yeah. I mean, this guy, Romans, you know. I mean, wow, what a book. What else? A martyr, he died for his faith, yes. Did you know how many books he wrote in the New Testament? It's like, I'm pretty sure it's 13 books of the New Testament he wrote. Anything else that jumps out for you and Paul? Maybe a little full of himself at times. Yeah, I, I, could, I could certainly agree with you there. Persuasive. Yeah, he argued his case pretty persuasively at times. Um, when I think of Paul, to me, he kind of, he gets put on this pedestal almost. He's like the apostle of all apostles, right? These people who were sent out after Jesus into the world with this new message of the gospel and of reconciliation. And Paul becomes sort of like the poster child, right? He's on the Nike posters, okay? He's the apostle of all apostles. He wrote most of the New Testament. For a guy who's interested in theology, he's kind of like the, the grand poobah. I mean, when you think of New Testament theology, it's Paul. In fact, one of the critiques of Christians is that they actually worship Paul, not Jesus, especially those who are sort of Protestant Reformation people, of which we are a part of in our tradition, think Calvin, think Luther, that Protestants often bow at the altar of Paul, maybe even more so than the altar of Jesus, or, or bow a knee to Paul maybe more so than Jesus. Right? So he kind of gets elevated to this status of like, right? he says things like, pray without ceasing, rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice, 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 and again I say rejoice. Anybody remember that one? Yeah, yeah, I was, man, I was singing that all week long. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but prayer and supplication, present your request to God. So here, this is now Paul. This is the image I have of him, right? He's never anxious. He's always rejoicing. He's singing in the choir with my grandmother. He prays all day and every day, and this is who he is. He's a super apostle. And then, of course, what chance does a schlep like me have who can hardly get himself out of bed twice a week to pray and journal and, like, be with the Lord? Because I compare myself to Paul the super apostle, right? And I'm the only one that does this, of course. Yeah. So we have the super pastor, right? This guy or gal knocks it out of the park every single week. Home runs, never preaches a bad sermon. They, they're funny, they're smart, they're intelligent, they're compassionate, they're empathetic, and they can lead. They always make the right call. They never make mistakes. This is the super pastor. He doesn't exist. <laughs> she doesn't exist. Or the super mom or dad, right? This is, these people, they never lose their patience. They are, they are just like long-suffering with their children. They are always there. They make it to every game. 
They, they show up, they plan meals in advance, they clean, they cook, they bring home the bacon, not gender specific. They uh, lead their families, they're always prepared. They're like Boy Scouts on steroids, always prepared. Super mom, super dad. The super, uh, the super worker, you know, career person, person of integrity. I mean, just straight arrow, but they climb the ladder without losing their soul. They make the right calls. They make enough money. They get the raises. They, they are philanthropists. When I was practicing, I said they're philanderers, but no, they are philanthropists. They give their money away. They're on the board of all these beautiful nonprofits. They are the super career person or the super spouse, right? You know, always, always a great communicator. Quick to say, I'm sorry. Great in the bedroom, but nice and modest in public, you know. <laughs> so we set up these people as the super whatever, and then they're normal, and they're real. But guess what? They're not. Newsflash, gang. They're not real. We create a version of someone or something and then we put that out in front of us and we compare ourselves to that and whatever gap is between super whoever and me is what I feel today. And it informs my self-worth and my value and my identity. The gap that exists between the super whatever and me. So fill in the blank wherever you are. Student, (laughs) pastor, mom, dad, whatever. I look at this passage, and I got to be honest, I take great comfort, because here we have Paul, the super apostle, and he's flip-flopping like a bad political candidate, right? He's like, I regretted sending that letter. When I sent it, I was like, oh, no. And then when Titus came, I was like, I'd send that letter again if I had to do it, because it did what it did. How you like me now? It's like back and forth. He doesn't really know how it's going to land, and I love it, because he's learning as he's leading. This is Paul the apostle, the sort of front runner on the new church of Jesus Christ in the world. This is a big deal. That's a big shot. Anybody remember Meet uh, meet the Parents? Well, Florence Nightingale over there would play some defense. I missed one shot. That was a big shot. Paul, Paul, guys, guys, focus. Paul, the apostle. I have this friend, Becky Patton. She says, I reserve the right to change my mind because I'm in process. I mean, how many of you believe exactly what you believed five years ago? Today? Or or yesterday? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. I wonder if for Paul, having no anxious thoughts and presenting everything to the Lord in prayer and supplication looks like Paul backing up the dump truck of his life to the proverbial lap of God every day and just unloading it, dumping it, just hanging by a thread to the hope of resurrection. I wonder if Paul is not the super apostle or pastor or mom or dad or student or whatever, but just a guy desperate to see God work and hanging on the hope of resurrection. I wonder if that's more of what Paul looks like. So can I just stop for a moment today and talk you off the ledge? Whatever the super so-and-so is out in front of you that you compare yourself to, that you assess your worth and value and identity, maybe without even realizing it. You know that wife who you wish you could be like? You know that dad 
who loves his kids so much better than you? You know that, you know that, you know that, it's not real. In academia, they call this a straw man. What happens is, I hold one position, you hold another position. In my defense of my position and my, my sort of attack of your position, I create an alternate reality, an alternate version of the position you hold. It's called a straw man. And then I shred it just with, you know, beautiful arguments and great phrases. And I just beat the snot out of this thing. Well, it's a straw man. It doesn't actually represent reality. And this is what we do. We create this straw man, this version of somebody, and then the problem is it beats the snot out of us because you can't measure up. You don't measure up. You know where that leads? Death. It is not life-giving. Paul talks about this a couple of chapters ago when we studied it. What's true of you is that you are loved, you are valued, you belong, you have a name. You are an inheritor. You are a son and a daughter. And that's what's true of you. And to live in this reality is to be in Christ. It's called new creation. And when we learn how to gain life from this place instead of this place, this actually has the potential to be generative. It actually has the potential to grow something good and beautiful in you. This only leads to death and dissatisfaction and despair. So, friends, you choose. It's, I don't do a lot of sort of ironclad, you know, promises, like you can take this to the bank, but this one's pretty clear. The problem with the super whoever is that it's not real. It's not normal, and it only leads to despair. I want to just peel back the layer one more click, if I can, and share a little bit of my own process and journey. I've shared with you guys lately, uh, God's been at work in me, doing something in me, which, which has to do with my story and the systems that I grew up in. Uh, I've spent two and a half days in like intense, an intense kind of therapy uh, situation, and I'm learning a lot about myself. Uh, and I want to just share a bit of that with you to kind of give you a, a lens into what does it look like uh, for me. So I'll put this up on the screen. This is, a, uh, if you're a therapist or a mental health person, you might recognize this. Uh, and ladies in the room, uh, I have to just ask you to do the work of translation because I can only speak from maleness because, well, that's what I am. Surprise. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is called The Four Archetypes of the Male Soul, the Masculine Soul. Uh, Richard Rohr wrote a book called The Return of Adam. He's borrowing from two guys, Gillette and somebody else. This is not new information, but it's, it's quite interesting. So just translate for, for the ladies in the room. So the archetype of a male soul is that there are these four quadrants and that each one of us has a go-to. We have a quadrant that we feel the most at home in. It's sort of the one that we, we operate out of without even thinking about it. It's our uh, sort of our MO, right, our modus operandi. We just do it. Uh, if you had to guess which one of these is mine, any guesses? Warrior. Yeah, the first hour was sage, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think so at all. <laughs> so thank you, but no. Uh, yeah, warrior. And, and here's, the, here's, here's what I'm learning. Each one of these quadrants has gold and shadow. Gold is the asset. It's the beauty. It's the thing that you bring that is of value. The shadow is what exists and what you've learned and what shows up without even knowing it. 
So when you, when you run into resistance, the shadow side of my warrior comes out. The gold of my warrior, are, are, it's things like uh, focus and mission and like activator, right? Risk taker, these kinds of things. And guess what? To plant Awaken, I think that was needed. But this next season at Awaken, I'm sensing in me that I'm being invited to operate in other quadrants or to integrate other areas, primarily this king one, this, which isn't like, you know, you know put, the, put the crown on me, I'm the king. But it's rather this steward of resources, this one who comes under others and empowers, who becomes a leader of leader. Think, I love this, the image of Camelot, right? The knights of the round table gave themselves not to King Arthur, but to Camelot. The vision that could be this beautiful city. But Arthur was a steward of that vision. That's the invitation that I feel. And I'm learning that when, when, th- when your shadow stays in the dark, it train wrecks you. Whatever gold you bring in whatever quadrant it is, if you're not aware of the shadow material that's there, which these are patterns I learned from like when I was a little kid about from the systems. And we all come from family systems where there's both gold and shadow. Can I get an amen? And so we learn things and that shows up. And if I'm not aware of that, it tanks me. And it comes off as distant and compulsive and abrasive and unempathetic, whatever that word is. And some of you have felt that. And I got to be honest, That grieves my heart so deeply because that's not who I want to be. The work is to bring the shadow material into the light, not to get rid of it, but to know that it's there and to know that when I face resistance, I turn to that. And so to become an integrated leader, what I struggle with the most is the bottom right this lover quadrant, this empathy, compassion, that does not come naturally to me. So I share all that to say, when I read a passage like this from Paul and I see him struggling and not being able to get it right or wondering if he made the right call or flip-flopping back and forth, I take a lot of comfort in that because Paul is learning as he's leading. And so if you're here this morning and you're in leadership of any kind, whether it's as a mom or an executive or a dad or a pastor or whatever, a realtor, the challenge and the invitation is not to get it right all the time. It's to be growing and learning and becoming a fully integrated person who's able to show up with all of who you are, your gold and your shadow, but knowing what's there so that it doesn't bite you so that it doesn't come out without you knowing it. That's the goal. Sage is like wisdom, sort of uh, um, kind of the, the, honestly, I think Ben uh, is, that's, this is, Ben is sage and lover. I'm sort of up here. Um, my, uh, some, of the, some of the people that you might know who are older, uh, who, have, who have just great wisdom, and uh, they operate here. Usually sage doesn't come without pain or age. Great, great work. And, I, and I, I share that because I think this is work we should all be doing, not just if you're in leadership, but as a human who wants to be like fully integrated and available in relationships, this kind of work is important. So I commend it to you. Uh, last one, and, and sort of I said there were two things that popped out. Here's the last one. Uh, I would say it this way. There are different kinds of sorrow. 
Paul ends this passage and he says to them, like, this letter that I sent to you, it made you sorrow. It, it gave you sorrow. Or it made you sorry. And he's kind of like, and I was glad for it. At which point you're like, hmm, interesting. A little sadistic, you know, kind of, but whatever. Uh, but he goes on to say, because your sorrow led to repentance. Repentance is a, is a kind of big theological church word that essentially means to turn around. Like you're headed in this direction. The Hebrew word is teshuva, and it means turn around, go the other way. If this is not leading to life, you teshuva, repent, and turn around. Has nothing to do with shame, has nothing to do with sort of belittling, has nothing to do with pointing out faults or what you are not. It means you turn around. That's it. Your sorrow led to repentance, which means you turned around. You came towards life. And then he goes on to say, godly sorrow, I would, I would interchange conviction, brings repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Gang, there is a massive difference that Paul is putting up. Two polar opposites. One thing that we need not be afraid of which is godly, spirit-led conviction and shame. Conviction leads to repentance, which leads to life. It can actually grow something. It's generative. We need not be afraid of the light. Shame invites you to hide, which leads to death. And there's a difference here. What I'm not going to do is give you three steps to discern how and when it's conviction and, shame, and not shame. Because there is no silver bullet here. This is the myth of Christianity sometimes when a pastor will get up and say, all right, guys, here's the deal. Three steps on how to figure out when it's conviction and when it's shame. When you find those people, run. They're selling something and you don't want it. There is no substitute for time on the water. I'm a fisherman. I'm, I'm part of these websites. You might think this is a little bizarre, but like there's forums for fishermen. Any hobbyist, you know, you can find forums online. So I'm a fisherman, and there are people, these, these people, you know, usually wet behind the ears, greenhorns, they come on these forums, and they say, hey, I'm going to go fish pool two down here. Uh, any, any tips on where to find fish? And it's crickets on the forums. Do you want to know why? Because all these people are like, do you know how many hours I have invested to know where those fish are? No, I'm not giving that up. There's no substitute for time on the water. It's usually when somebody does speak up, they're like, hey, hope you have fun, but you know, no substitute for time on the water, which is code word for get your butt out there and put some time on the water, put some hours in the bank, and then maybe you'll learn something about where the fish are. Pretty specific application, I know, but translate, right? There is no substitute for time in the footsteps of Jesus. That's kind of cliche. I, I get it. You know, follow the footsteps, yeah, blah, blah. But there is no substitute for walking it out. I can't tell you how to discern between conviction and shame. I can only tell you what it felt like in the moments where I have felt it and felt it. And it will be different for you. My invitation to you, because one, <laughs> it's a big deal. One leads to life and one leads to death. And when you're a part of communities and relationships that do shame as their primary source of motivation, it will kill you. If it hasn't already, it will kill you. When you are a part of communities and relationships that do godly, spirit-led conviction, it will 
It will make you come alive. You need not be afraid. Because what's being offered is life. And there's no substitute for time on the water to just being faithful to take the next step in following this Jesus. You may, you may think, well, thanks, but no thanks. That's sort of depressing. Sorry. <laughs> There's just no substitute for it. You gotta live in it. That's why community is so important because you can't see it all. So I'm gonna invite Josh and the, the crew. We're gonna sing one more song together. A bit of a, uh, we've, we introduced it a couple weeks ago. And it has this refrain, this chorus of, you are making all things new. Which is one of the biggest themes in the book of 2 Corinthians. That God is about new things. God is, there is a new creation that has been birthed. That's literally the word, it's being birthed in you. And God is making new things. And so, I'll just, uh, maybe for a moment if you would. I want to invite you to just uh, close your eyes, consider, think, and I want to just offer, really there's two kind of faces of wisdom here. The rabbis would say that the scriptures has 70 faces, which is to say that depending on how you turn this beautiful jewel that is the word of God, the scriptures, the story of Jesus, the light gets refracted in different ways. And I think that there's kind of two things being offered here today. And so I would just invite you to consider, maybe today... One of these is capturing your gaze. Maybe one of these has sort of called you out. And just focus on it. Maybe it's an invitation to just step off the ledge. To stop comparing yourself to whatever the super is. To recognize that God has spoken definitively about you. That you belong. That you have value. You have worth. You are beautiful. You are a son you are a daughter. There is no condemnation. There is no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. These are the things that are true of you. And you're being invited to stand there in that space. And so I would just consider you to invite you to consider that. And maybe it's this razor's edge between godly conviction and shame. And I don't know what's there for you, Maybe something is kind of rolling around in your spirit. That thing, that sort of feeling that you get. And you know that you know that you know. For me, that's usually an invitation to follow the spirit on something. But Awaken is trying to be a community that does not do shame. But that offers godly conviction Turn around if you're not walking towards life. I'm hoping that the relationships that you're a part of are doing that. And so maybe there's something there for you. And so just in the next few moments before we sing this song, I invite you to consider one of those two. And just follow the Spirit where it leads you. Find us online at www at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.